Welcome to Burned by the Firewall, an Occamsec podcast. Hi, and welcome to Burned by the Firewall. On today's episode, Mike and I are joined by Topeco founder and Chief Risk Officer, Nick Punaya. Hi, Nick, and welcome. Hey, Devin. Good to, good to see you guys. Thanks for having me on. It's pretty cool being on a podcast. This is my first one, so uh, apologies if I rant. I do that sometimes. Rant away. It's, it's all good here. <laughs> Right, so uh, maybe we should start with uh, like a little bit about you and your background. Yeah, no problem. So uh, I am currently one of the managing directors of our startup, Tapico. Uh, we're a small company of around 10 people, and I'm responsible for all things risk, compliance, information security, privacy, HR related, as you are in a, in a startup. Um, yeah, that's what I do right now. Um, how I got here was a bit of an odd story. Uh, there wasn't a grand design, really, to be completely honest. I kind of fell into that space by accident. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm from New Zealand, I'm a Kiwi. But, but uh, what you probably can't tell on audio is that I've also got uh, Indian Malaysian heritage and I grew up in that kind of a family. So education was very much at the forefront of how I grew up. Uh, got sat down very early on and my father said, you're either going to be a lawyer or a doctor, pick one. So I picked being a lawyer and that's where I thought I was headed my entire life. But um, how I ended up in risk was a whole different ballpark. <laughs> Nick, I think you you and I both uh, share a, a similar story and how we fell into the business. It wasn't part of the grand design, but but here we are. So I can relate to that. I think that's pretty cool. And uh, also getting into the the VM and, and risk side of things also is speaking my language. So you got me excited over here. Uh, but before we get in and dive into like, all of the, the the topics du jour, if you will. Uh, we always ask our guests a, a fun question to sort of break the ice, and that is, growing up as a kid, what was your favorite piece of, of childhood technology? Childhood technology. Um, the thing I loved the most was my Nintendo 64. Um, yep. GoldenEye, it came with the Rumble Pack, that got me very excited. <laughs> oh, always, always something I, about stopping that Rumble Pack cartridge in, which meant like, it was on, let's do this. <laughs> Fantastic right choice. I still have my N64 with Goldeneye. Oh, we'll have to have a game someday. Yeah, as long as nobody plays odd job, we're good. I've got to find it, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's somewhere. That was yeah, definitely yeah. the game. That was definitely one of the games for sure. Right yeah. on. It was awesome because you just got you know four people in a room straight away. You didn't have to have any expansions or anything. You just go at each other. Oh, yeah, I was, I was, and I was terrible at it. So uh, oh. you will probably win. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, awesome. So, um, yeah, do you want to give us a little bit of a lowdown on um, on your company, Topico, and uh, and what it's doing? Yeah. Okay. So, Topico is um, we're a company that integrates financial software systems. Uh, we do it both uh, within different organizations or between different organizations and within a single organization. Um, and the idea is that we're we're trying to amplify our customers' capabilities um, by building integrations with tools that they use day to day uh, so they can automate existing processes or lower the cost to their clients um, and the grand design there is to essentially get to a position where we create a financial ecosystem of trusted providers um, so that people who use these tools can have faith in the system they're using both from a security and a uh, functionality standpoint uh, and that's like a really really ridiculous high level overview so like to make it a bit real, an example I would I usually give people is uh, like with financial advisors or mortgage brokers or things like that. They typically 
use a range of tools to figure things out for you. So, you know, want to understand your income, your expenses, what uh, your life goals might be, how you want to achieve them, what age you want to achieve them. Um, and they can use like a really wide range of tools. Um, some of them might be regulated tools, some of them might not. Um, and they spend a lot of time kind of switching between the tools and re-entering data between them. And, um, you know, that leads to a lot of errors and just time spent that doesn't need to be spent. So we really specialize in making those tools talk to each other and um, giving advisors the opportunity to really hone in their proposition um, or whoever might be using our tools. Uh, yeah, without the use of screen scraping. So trying to make everything more secure. Yeah, and as I understand it, I don't think there's... Um many other companies doing or any other companies doing what you're doing at this point, right? Yeah, not really. We are kind of in a, in a little market of one to coin a buzzword there. But um, I guess the point is there's lots of companies out there kind of looking at open banking or obtaining financial data via screen scraping, which are, which are awesome. They're all pushing the boundaries um, further forward. They're all focusing directly on the end customer. Um, but no one's really looking at the the tool integration. Like I know a lot of people out there probably manage their expenses using spreadsheets or um, whatever they can get their hands on basically. And it's a cumbersome process. Like a lot of, I know myself, when I, when I look at the things I have in different pockets, I've got to go through at least three or four different companies worth of apps or tools in order to figure out where I am at any one time. You know, I have a, a pension somewhere, I have my bank account and I have an investment account. Um, so, the idea is that we can start to combine the functions between those tools. And that's not necessarily like turning them into one tool, right? Um, it's more about just having a single point where you can go to um, to understand where you're at and then make the right decisions based on what you're trying to achieve. Lower the friction. Um, a lot of people who have all these um, things don't actually know what the right decision to make is, which is why they seek out people like financial advisors and whatnot. Um, and our ability to start to automate those processes and give time back to advisors or mortgage brokers and people like that enables them to serve more people. So it's about kind of lowering that cost so more people can have access to those services who um, might need them, might be turned off by the existing cost of them, um, or you know, just really getting the ability for people to take control of their financial lives back in their hands. Yeah, and going back to like uh, I guess the beginning, because I know that you've uh, you've got a history in, in risk, and you were actually working at, um, for one of the largest banks uh, down there in uh, in New Zealand, Australia. Um, yeah. Uh, so, what security challenge did you find as a startup, and and you know coming from a from a large organization, and now you know you're, you're in a startup situation? What sort of challenges did you find and and, and overcome? That's a that's a big question. Um, <laughs> Security in a large organization, it's a funny thing. It starts at like the internet is bad <laughs> and you kind of have to work your way through. Um, these organizations, uh, they have started with kind of a closed perimeter approach, like keep everybody out. Um, and now they're uh, evolving into a world where there's lots of third-party tools that they want to use, right? So the things that we integrate um, into their, their environment requires them to think about security differently. So it's uh, very much pushing towards, uh, you know, to coin a few buzzwords, zero trust models and things like that, um, beyond corp. Um, but those are all like, you know, great in theory, but how do you execute that, right? The, the key there is education internally, um, bringing people on the journey, helping them understand like where they're at now might have been fit for purpose 
uh, up until that exhausting point in time, but what's the landscape evolving? You've got to evolve how you think about security. And um, pushing towards having identity as your basis of security is very much a change that um, began uh, when I was back in the big bank. Um, and we would spend a lot of time kind of educating people why, but also figuring out where to take the appropriate calculated risks to test what we were building. Um, I find like a lot of people get excited about digital change and the challenge of it all. And yeah, let's do it. What can we announce? Um, but the reality is you probably don't want to take those big risks on your core banking system if you've never done it before, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a big risk to take, but given the breadth of what a bank does, like, I mean, within a bank, right, you've got everything. You take, you take retail and institutional banking out of it for a second. You've got marketing, you've got HR, you've got, you know, you've got doctors on records if you're doing um, insurance checks, everything. Like banks are, have a wide, wide breadth of... Um, things that they do. And that gives you a really, really wide testing landscape. Um, there's lots of things in there that are much, much, much lower risk than just playing with people's money um, where you can kind of go, okay, let's, let's start um, in a space and really test out whether we can create a single identity and then understand um, kind of device profiling in relation to security and how we control access in relation to that. And then how we start to prove value through that and then you use those internal value points to start to scale things out to higher and higher risk um, services. So that's the, that's the big bank. The, the little um, startup side is, is far more interesting. It's uh, the problems are just as hard and they actually revolve around the how as well. They, um, you've kind of got a limited employee footprint and you want to do a lot and you're trying to, especially in regulated financial services where we play, you're trying to play with, big banks and financial services who have massive security teams and who have a, a high um, standard of security, expectedly so, of us as a company. And um, for us, the challenge is how do we do that with the employee footprint and um, the constraints we work with them? So uh, using cloud tools has been great for us, but also using open source tools within that landscape to understand our security position, um, using implementing best practice up front so having that push left mentality when it comes to deploying code that type of thing is is great for us because we can implement that with no um inertia to go through <laughs> there's no change right it's it's do it from the get-go and we can move on but um understanding how to do that is still just as hard the stuff is, is relatively new in the grand scheme of things um the information is not widely available and you don't have the budget to just you know hire people in um, in order to help you out, you've really got to um, participate in the community and look for help around who and people who are willing to help you um, kind of form that position and take those right steps forward. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I if that resonates, but it's definitely something that that I I experienced. Yeah, for sure. That definitely resonates with me, Nick. Um, I just recently read a Microsoft uh, examining zero trust paper, an executive roundtable discussion, and, and they talked about that exact same approach, which makes sense when implementing something like that. You know, start small, low risk, get your, get your arms around it as an organization, make sure you know how to, to enforce things and roll things out and then build from there. So that, that resonates with me for sure. Um, I, I'm curious, kind of listening to your story, and understanding where, where you guys connect the dots within the financial industry. Um, obviously, you mentioned third party. So how, how do you guys or, or what are you guys doing to sort of uh, shore up third party risk? And, and, you know, how much do you worry about that, given the landscape of, of what we're seeing uh, across the, the globe really right now? Yeah, yeah. Third party risk is um, something close to my heart. So outside of the security space, like within the bank, when I was uh, 
coming up in the in the world. Um, I I didn't start in security, right? Like when I joined the bank, I started on the phones um, and I had a range of roles over 10 years, which ended as the head of um, digital risk and security. So I bring a bit of empathy into the space from what customers experience um, throughout their journey with, with a large institution. So the way I think about that is, is really impact focused. Um, what is, what is the value these third-party integrations bring to the customer, right? Um, and how do we need to protect and get our heads around the risk associated with the use of those third parties in relation to what the customer needs or how it affects the customer? So if we're saying, you know, if it's like a scheduling tool, help a customer create some meeting invites, great. You know, this, this is a tool we can use as long as we don't give it too much access um, from a, a system standpoint, we're okay. Versus right. I want this tool to form a financial plan for my customer and I want them to execute against their financial plan, which could, you know, adversely affects their financial position or their children's financial position or, you know, the, the, the net can really widen. Um, so how I think about it is essentially what is the tool doing? What's the functional use case for the tool? Um, and if you're going to integrate something into your environment, limit the integration to what it's there to do. Um, try not to open up too many kind of potential attack or impact vectors as a result of the integration you're, you're, you're putting into play. The other side of that is keeping your arms wrapped around the volume of third-party integrations that you start to build around your proposition, right? Um, so, you know, traditionally customers were, or not customers, but sorry, uh, companies were faced with the old build or buy, right? Do I, what value is the IP in this to me? Do I build it or do I buy it? In? And it was actually build, buy or outsource, right? The reality of it. And buy and outsource have become synonymous, right? It's not about buying software and deploying it on your, um, on your controlled servers anymore. <clears throat> it's about integrating with cloud-based solutions that you pay a subscription annually for. And all of a sudden you're starting to outsource this risk um, across various elements of the stack. It's not as clear cut as saying, you know, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, there's still variance within that spectrum. Um, and you really have to understand what the value um, that brings to your proposition is and how you even want to present that proposition to your customers. Um, there are elements where if you have a strategic direction of creating an ecosystem, you actually want to present your third-party brands to your customers and say, hey, we actually, you know, we partner with Salesforce to use this. That's cool. Versus we use Salesforce integrations within our UI and present that to you. Um, and the client doesn't really know what's happening um, or that there's anything else under the hood happening that is uh, affecting the services that they, they rely on. Um, so really understanding that supply chain, that daisy chain of events that leads to the value that you're trying to provide, that is where I would focus probably 90% of my energy in that question. Um, and then kind of going down the rabbit hole. So, okay, I have a proposition I want to put into play and it involves connecting a bunch of incumbent financial institutions who have been in the game for 100 years to a bunch of startups who have been in the game for no longer than five. <laughs> what is their security posture? What does that look like? Um, and I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm not going to be the person that says, you know, every startup must be ISO 27001 certified and obtain everything they need to obtain tomorrow, because I know what's involved in that. And there's, you know, hundreds of controls that you need to adhere to and um, get continuously audited against. It's, there's a middle ground in there to be found. There are high value controls and there are things that you don't necessarily need to care about, provided you're using the right cloud infrastructure provider. Um, 
that type of understanding is uh, what I look to see in the startups that we integrate with. So I look to see if they have the understanding, right? At the end of the day, all of this revolves around people. You can have the best tech in the world um, if you don't know how to use it or if you implement it incorrectly or you are ignorant of um, what it's capable of, then you're going to set yourself up for some heartache. <laughs> um, and especially in financial services, there's the, the cost of failure can be very high. Um, it's not quite as bad as, you know, a plane crashing, but it's, it's people's finances that um, can really, really impact their day-to-day and their family's day-to-day. Um, and it has, it has an emotional impact. Like it's not a sudden event that's catastrophic, right? If you see your finances start to go the wrong way and it's out of your control, that has a toll, an emotional toll it takes on you as a person. Um, I can remember it took many, many phone calls at the contact center about customers who had gone through uh, people who had successfully defrauded them. Um, and just getting them through that process and helping them understand, you know, what can be done and how you support them and whether they're eligible for refunds, whether we can find the money, always depends on the situation and what, what's occurring. But um, in fact, I myself got defrauded, which is somewhat ironic given I used to be the head of bloody <laughs> um, digital risk uh, about three weeks ago. Um, and it was, it was interesting. I was up at four in the morning because I have a newborn child and that's what you do. <laughs> and um, I saw an email that came through that said, um, somebody's changed the pin on your, your banking app. And it's like, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't you, contact us immediately. So contact immediately. And I could literally see the money just being taken and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and yeah, the emotion at four in the morning, you kind of like, you just really, you're mad about life <laughs> and you don't need the extra stress. Um, so all of that is plays into to how I, I think about implementing a control environment around that, that scenario. Um, impact first, what's the customer going to feel as opposed to what's the company going to feel? The company's going to feel it second, but customer always comes first. And um, yeah, the bigger the company, you can you find that some people lose sight of that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that's also sounds like quite a panicky situation. Uh, four in the morning, my money, I see my money disappearing out of my bank account. Uh, yeah. Nobody wants to be in that, in that yeah. position. Uh, I mean, also, I mean, because as you as you mentioned, the um, you know the interconnectedness and startups not being able to to be at ISO twenty seven thousand and one etc. Off the bat, right? So I know we were you know um, lucky enough to to co-author with you the uh, this guardrail paper, mm. um, which was your your kind of your your brainchild of of how to help financial startups to to begin their their security journey. Do you want to um, give our listeners a, a little background on that, and we can share the link in the uh, in the podcast. Yeah, the guardrails, um, that, was, that was a great little initiative, actually. Um, the, the idea was, I, because we work with a lot of startups looking to connect to financial institutions, uh, we have to create kind of a, a security ecosystem around that to say, yeah, we, we trust these people because, uh, you know, they've got the right security posture. Um, and a lot of what I was seeing was um, a lot of engineers are doing really good things. They just didn't know how to translate that to paper. So they might have been doing all the right things, but they didn't know they were doing them. They were doing it because it was best practice or because, you know, it's just what you do. You don't think about talking about it. You just do it. Um, so giving people a framework to kind of go, okay, this is what we think good looks like. Um, and this is coming from like a muggle's perspective, right? I'm not a, I'm not a developer or a coder by any means. So I can kind of help play translator um, at the best of times. But giving people and engineers kind of a way to think about how to present security. That was the intent behind the guide rails. Um, 
yeah, I think it's it's had it's had good reception. People have been um, contacting me about them, um, and a lot of the questions again I'm getting are related to how how do we execute this. So some things on there are you know things need to be encrypted, great, but there's some other nuances in there are like being able to um, have effective uh, security event monitoring that type of thing. Um, and you know if you Google SEM, you're going to get a lot of expensive solutions thrown at you very quickly. <laughs> um, Sounds like we need to uh, to do a part two. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the how is uh, definitely where my head's at in the next space, like giving people the ability to automate a lot of what they do. Because with the cloud, I mean, a lot of it's config these days, um, which is great, right? I mean, how many incidents have we seen on Amazon that weren't really incidents that were just public config buckets, right? <laughs> it's, that's human error. The hardest stuff out there is then how do we take it to that next level? How do we give people visibility over what we've done um, consistently? Because the way well, most of the engineers I know think they they want to do it, but they don't want to do it at a point in time. They want to do it so they don't have to do it again. <laughs> they want to automate not only the control, but the visibility of that control. And then you start to kind of come into situations of balancing privacy and um, access to information against uh, the control environments that are spun up. Um, and I know the security industry has traditionally kind of gone, we'll do a software attestation or we'll do a certification but there's nothing in the in-between bucket to kind of say, actually, we've opted into this, I don't know, security dashboard or something. This is what our profile looks like. Um, if you like what we do, this is where we're at. If you don't, then don't use us. <laughs> um, it's a kernel of a thought at the moment, but yeah. So Nick, I want to build on the, I guess, the mission that you have of answering that question of how in, in these coming kind of years and months uh, as you guys steam ahead. Um, and I want to also harken back to your awesome reference to Harry Potter and, and the word muggle. And uh, I'd like for you to maybe share with us uh, and the, the muggles that are out there, AKA the startups and the entrepreneurs that are trying to come up in the industry. Like what kind of advice do you have uh, for, for that type of person, for that type of mindset, um, whether it's in security or whether it's in banking, um, what, what advice would you share with them to, to kind of get off the ground and, and be successful in the environment that we see today? Um, there's a few things, I guess. I mean, the main thing, like from a risk and security perspective, be prepared. Um, there's a ton of free information out there that you can use to kind of go, this is what good looks like or should look like. Um, doesn't cost you anything, just time, uh, which arguably is your most valuable asset. But um, yeah, I guess the main thing is understand your security posture as an organization um, and by virtue of doing that, most startups will then just inherently understand their risk posture. Their risk kind of doesn't really go beyond uh, technology risk in a, in a massive way, not until you start to scale out into other things. Um, there's a lot of good resources out there. There's tons of um, things you can find, not just in the security side of things, but um, also the risk side of things that are available for most VC firms on their websites is just a lot out there. Um, if you're confused or you, can't um, kind of find the signal within the noise, just pick one and roll with it. <laughs> um, most of it's saying the same thing in a different way. So find something that you understand and just, just go with it. If it's the guide rails, if it's something else, um, just understand your security posture is the number one. Um, if you're a startup looking to play in regulated services, financially regulated services, that would be the biggest stuff I have. And bake it in upfront, don't, don't have it as an afterthought. Don't try to overlay security once you've already bought your product you'll find that um, the, the changes required will probably mess with your network, config, your infrastructure, all of that. Um, so 
yeah, really, really, really think about that stuff up front. Um, spend the extra time um, thinking about the impact. Spend the extra time thinking about location of data um, and redundancy and how uh, you would recover if something something went down. Um, the the one thing that you will understand very quickly once you talk to some of the larger financial institutions is that even if they wanted to outsource their risk, they can't legally do it, right? So you might have a CRM tool that's completely unregulated and just relies on user input, but they're going to need to know that you can recover if that tool goes down. Uh, they're going to need to know how you plan on doing that. And it can't just be, uh, we've got, you know, redundancy turned on, tick. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to have a bit more than that. Um, so get into the detail. Um, what else? I guess the um, from a startup mentality perspective, totally different ballpark living in a big incumbent organization versus um, being in a startup and a founder and trying to get something off the ground. So, yes, you'll hear all the usual shit about being resilient and um, not, you know, not taking the hits too hard and don't don't dwell on it for longer than twenty four hours. Yada yada yada. But the biggest piece of advice I'd give um, anyone looking at startups and making decisions in a startup is what is the true cost of failure for that decision that you're thinking about making, right? Understand the impact of the road you're going down and then decide whether or not it's worth going down. Um, you might have a great customer who needs you to deliver by Tuesday and it's currently Friday. <laughs> um, so you're gonna have to cut some corners. Is it worth it? What's the impact of doing it? Um, don't, don't just rush for the money if it's gonna cost you your reputation. I've seen, Many startups go under because of that. Um, speaking from my old banking days, when I um, part of my last role was to help invest in startups, a lot of people would make sales based on things they didn't have um, and then rush to get things into production. And then it all just turns to crap and no one trusts you ever again, right? Um, if you're going to destroy your reputation that early on, you're not going to survive. So, yeah, really think about the true cost of failure in those situations. Um, and sometimes you might have a great opportunity in front of you, but you don't have the time to execute. There's a reason for that. <laughs> um, think about why a large incumbent organization is talking to a staff about that, because no other large incumbent organization is probably going to take that job. Some, uh, yeah, very, very good advice there. And um, I mean, I, I, I know that we've had conversations before uh, in, in the early days um, of, of of uh, Topeka and um, and I think I was very impressed by your the security first mindset that you were bringing straight in I've seen I've seen companies that are let's just get it working we'll worry about security later but you were definitely straight on you know what I don't mind if it's a little bit slower in the progress but I want to be secure from day one I don't want to fix the holes later and I think that that a lot of companies can learn from that that I think companies are now learning from that that kind of attitude um, yeah, DevSecOps right that's what we're seeing there's the new another new buzzword another new cycle right it's, that's what everyone's trying to do is 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 do it now as opposed to fix it later right yeah and it's, it's only getting cheaper as time goes on which is great like i um i mean even if you look at GitLab's a great example where they have um different tiers for the ci cd pipeline and one of them starts to include security but you don't actually have to get the most expensive tier to get the security benefits right there are lots of open source tools you can just plug in um and run during your pipeline in order to figure out if you've got holes in your code. Um, I don't think, and I, I suppose this might be a controversial thing to say, but for me personally, um, security and privacy are not competitive advantages, right? They are the baseline that you're ticket to play. Now, you know, companies like Apple and the market would generally say otherwise because they're advertising it as, you know, come to us, we're more secure, but that's 
that's not where we should be in financial services. I get it for devices and like, you know, where you're a consumer that um, actively has to make a trade-off between your security and how frictionless the thing you want to do is. But when it comes to your money, <laughs> I would I would say security and privacy are definitely top two, <laughs> uh, no matter what happens. So don't play with them. It's, it's funny you should mention Apple because I remember, I mean, this is going to go back quite quite a few years now, but... Um... Where where a very large organization, I won't mention the name. Um, they they use Blackberries, and it was like we're not using Apple; they're insecure. So <laughs> it's amazing how things have changed. Obviously, Blackberries have kind of disappeared off the market. I love my Blackberry actually back in the day, but uh, oh, so, right. I have um, this phone out there called the Punked. I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but um, it's like a it's a minimalist phone, and they're they're trying to take it back to um, what do they call it? The T nine messaging. So you have the nine the nine numbers, and then yeah you know clicks in each one um, I, I could type a lot quicker on the blackberry than i could on yeah you can type with your eyes closed right <laughs> but also um they have so they have blackberry baked in for security <laughs> which i found ironic because um that that's where it's at now if you kind of want to go really niche and you don't quite want to go to the black phone the silent um, os route then you've still got these minimalist phones out there that'll that'll give you your blackberry security <laughs> yep and they're really expensive <laughs> oh, they're hipster, hipster trends, but it's um, totally worth it. <laughs> Maybe we'll just use like the uh, the new Harmony OS from uh, Who Are We? Oh, <laughs> anyway, sorry, shouldn't bring that up, but uh, <laughs> I, I digress. But uh, yeah, I mean, going back to the kind of like security baked in and so on, like as a startup, right? How did you find hiring for staff um, with your kind of your 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 ethics, right? And and did you do you think like education? Uh, is more is more important or experience uh, when looking for these people? Uh, a few good questions in there. Um, I'll start by saying business, regardless of what business you're in, is an absolute war for talent. Um, it doesn't matter if you're large, medium or small. People, um, yeah, they make or break your business. You can have the smartest engineers in the room, um, but they aren't necessarily the best people uh, for your cultural fit. And you have to figure out how you as an organization want to uh, figure that out. Um, it's very different in geography as well. Like I am, so I know in the, the States, you can kind of fire fast because it's a, there are less hoops to jump through than say the UK or uh, Australia or New Zealand. So um, I should probably preface uh, this by saying that I've operated across 39 geographies in my old role, so I kind of have a view <laughs> as to what you can get away with um, and what you can do culturally in different different geographies. Um, so I would say, yeah, in the Australian zone, UK context, it's okay to hire a bit slower in order to ensure that you have the right candidate or be more sure you have the right candidate up front because you can't course correct as quickly. Um, now, in terms of qualifications, this is a big internal debate I constantly have. Um, I mentioned earlier on, my dad sat me down and said, you know, you're going to be a lawyer. So I actually went to law school, got the degree, sat the bar exam. It's called Profs in New Zealand, did all that. Um, I've, you know, I've sat Coburn, I've sat ITIL, I've sat um, the Sizer exam and the SISIP exam, passed everything. Um, don't have the professional credits because at the time, I think I was two years into my info security career in inverted commas. But um, and you need you know certain level of professional um, credits and years on the ball. I I'm not huge on accreditations. What I am huge on is participation. 
Um, so when it comes to engineering security, if people I meet are openly participating in open source communities or their local community events, and they show an active interest to learn, um, I'll take that any day of the week. And I'm not just talking about like, <laughs> you talk to them and they, they, they say they're interested and they happen to show up at the event, but they actually have tangible proof that they've done something, right? Um, you know, Git is great because you can look at commits and repos and you know things people have uh, contributed to their, their specific engineering um, domains, but it's a bit harder for things like risk and information security where it's a, it's a softer skill in the sense that they have to really want to be a part of the community and participate in some quite low key events in the grand scheme of things. Um, so yeah, I guess um, for risk and security, I would look at reputation and participation, uh, but I would look at it in a different way. Um, the way I found you guys actually was through someone I asked who had done some really good work for me back in Australia, uh, basically said, moving to the UK, need a pen tester, need someone who's, who's good, um, and who have you got? And then when they mentioned your name, you know, I saw a lot of your employees uh, participate in the OWASP chapters and there's, you know, there's lots of due diligence you can do on people, especially with LinkedIn out there these days. <laughs> you can gather information very quickly without ever having talked to anyone. Um, so that's that's what I value more than anything else, community participation and kind of a proven track record, which isn't necessarily 10 years of experience on the board, right? <laughs> uh, the amount of uh, CVs I've seen out there from large institutions that are like, I want 10 years of DevOps experience. And you kind of go, has it been around for 10 years yet? I'm not sure. Like, has <laughs> it even been a thing for that long? Um, so yeah, qualifications are great. Uh, they, to me, to an extent, are your ticket to play, uh, depending on what you do, right? Uh, obviously, if you're going to do something that requires a professional qualification, <laughs> you, you're going to need it. But um, yeah, some of the info security qualifications, the baseline ones, you can get the right, the same information from reading a book or reading the internet as you can, um, you know, going through a four-year process. So, yeah, it may sound it may sound like a, another cliche, but you want someone with a growth mindset, <laughs> someone um, who reads the right books and <laughs> talks the right talk, but uh, can also show that they've they've done that by what they've done over time. It's, it's, it's interesting you say that because I saw a thing on LinkedIn today where someone was actually analysing. Um, junior infosec job postings and it was like is this actually a junior infosec job posting you know and it starts off you know fine you know these are these are the roles you need to do and then suddenly it's like you need to have five years experience in it you need to have you need to have like xyz certificate and suddenly you're like hang on a minute you're just trying to get an experienced information security person for a junior salary right so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really sad as well because um there's lots out there about how that type of rhetoric starts to uh, widen the diversity gap, um, especially the gender gap, where um, guys might feel more inclined to apply if they've got you know 20% of the things on that piece of paper, whereas um, women might be less inclined to do so unless they have 40 or 50%. So yeah, you kind of have to start to look at that type of thing because I mean I think it's it's a foregone conclusion now that the more diverse you have uh, team you have, the the better off you're going to be in terms of results, provided that's the right type of um, leadership but yeah um it makes it makes sense when you go to an hr 
department or a recruiter and you go, hey, this is what I want. And they Google, okay, what's industry best practice out it, about it because they haven't actually done it themselves, right? So <laughs> I want to see this. Yeah. I want to see that. I want to see this. And you kind of feel sorry for them, but at the same time, you're also, it's, it's your job. So <laughs> you should be doing I'm constantly hounded by recruiters. I'm not going to lie. Like not, not to hire me, but just like, hey, we've got people you want. And it's like, have you really? I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, it's tenfold in the UK. It's, it's It blows my mind. I, I thought I was getting hounded by them in Australia and then, moved here and it's insanity there are just so many people trying to trying to send you cvs and the tactics they use are hilarious um <laughs> i've been kind of offered cvs of you know these are our prime candidates from revolut apple blah blah blah, blah. and then as soon as you like ping them they're like oh those guys are off the markets here are our real candidates <laughs> like all right cool the old bait and switch move on <laughs> Yeah, we, we've got it. We've got a guy on the team that constantly cracks jokes about the tactics that he sees used against him on, on LinkedIn. And, and so we always have a good laugh at that. But um, I, I want to sort of frame this next question in, in a sports way, right? So you find your squad, and you get your ticket to, to jump on the pitch with your team. And you know, that that's your thing now, right? That's what you're doing. You're, you're full time on this new team. In IT, especially, I know I found it very challenging um, to sort of have balance in life because you just sort of go all in with what it is you're doing, especially if you're in a small startup and, you know, you, you are the single point of failure or you are the guy for whatever it is. It's very easy for things to, and, and I imagine very much so if you're in the financial you know industry as well with the big bank, there's just a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, a lot of things to do and security and IT is constantly changing and growing and evolving. Um, do you have any advice? And this maybe goes for me too, Nick. <laughs> Do you have any advice on on how to achieve a good like work life balance uh, once you're on the squad, once you you find yourself on uh, on an IT team? Yeah, look, it's a it's a constant. It's a question that's constantly plagued me um, throughout my career. I hmm, how should I answer this? <laughs> the I'm lucky and unlucky in the sense that. When I, you know, I graduated, um, it was post GFC, so there wasn't much going. Right um, when I when I found the bank and I ended up in the bank, I fell in love with banking. I, I straight up really enjoyed it. It was the greatest, and still is the greatest show on earth, in my opinion. Um, which is why I'm going to start up in financial services. I don't think I'll ever leave financial services if I have my way. Um, but to me, work-life balance is—it's a question of what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it. Um, if you track back in my career, the hours I've worked are ridiculous and they're still ridiculous because I'm now, you know, a co-founder of a startup. So not only do I feel an obligation, but I also have, um, the drive to, to want to make this work. Um, but also I don't like, I, I genuinely enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it in the bank when I had to travel between multiple cities and, uh, you know, wake up a few hours early so I could make sure that I was in the next city by 8am and, get to work by nine it's um you know i i feed off that that type of energy i'm i'm that way inclined but the flip side of that is you can't have that expectation of your team like you have to recognize that um, you might be built in a certain way and that might get you out of bed but it's not going to get everybody out of bed in the morning in fact one of the interview questions i ask anyone who i interview is what gets you out of bed in the morning <laughs> because of this exact um this exact nuance just really understanding what what makes people tick that's a that's a core part of what i enjoy doing um, when i form a team because 
you don't want a team of alphas, right? It's, it's just not going to work. You, you want people that have supplementary skills uh, together, uh, get to the diversification, uh, diversity point. When you come together as, as that squad and you're on the pitch, you're, you're playing in a symbiotic way. You're not kind of brushing heads and um, all trying to go for the, the same goal in, in the same way. You can achieve much better um, outcomes if, you, if you're not all chasing the ball at the same time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think for me, expectation setting with yourself is a big part of that. Um, so work-life balance, uh, personally, prior to having a child in COVID, I would make sure I had the gym three times a week. Um, and in order to fit that in, I would go very early morning. Uh, part of that is, was wanting to fit that in. Part of that is also, I don't like packed gyms. They just annoy me generally. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just knowing what gives you that, that reprieve. Sometimes you, you'll know, you'll know what, um, what gives you that, that room to breathe and calendaring that time in, like actually diarizing it and making time for it and making it a priority in your life, that's that's key. And from the squad perspective, everybody needs to know that about each other, right? It's, it's not just on the leader, but also if you want a high functioning squad, especially with small numbers, you've really got to get to know the people around you, what makes them tick. Um, because there's going to be situations where, you know, you're in, you're in adversarial scenarios, whether it's a meeting or something's not quite going right. Um, and you'll know someone's being triggered and you've got to pick up the slack for them because of something that might've just happened in that context. And you know, that person's going to react that way. So it's on the rest of the team to kind of make up that shortfall. Um, so yeah, for me, it's, um, it's really having a, a deeper understanding of the people you're working with and building up that level of trust with them. And then it's up to the person to self-manage, right? So for me, I'm, I'm going to work hours and times that may not align. Um, like again, having a kid simply means that I'm up at a random hour and if I can't get to sleep, I'm probably going to go look at something on emails or, you know, get something done because I want to feel productive. Um, but not everyone's that way inclined. You know, you can't send out an email at 4am and expect to reply. <laughs> um, so yeah, like giving people room to breathe, being self-aware and really understanding people's triggers at a deeper level. Um, I think that's that's definitely core in keeping a small team together and keeping them perform, uh, keeping them performing at the, the pace and level that is um, acceptable. And also learning to say no. <laughs> like you have to you have to do that as a person, right? If if you can't say no, then you're gonna end up being that person who says yes and takes on everything and then gets overwhelmed. Um, and it's okay to say no. Like it's it's there for a reason. <laughs> I agree. I think there's a, there is a, there's a culture that can happen where people are just like, they should just say yes to everything. And it's like, actually, if you are overwhelmed and so on, then yeah, it's, it's, it's okay to say, I need space and, yeah, and, and, and no, right. But I mean, there's some fantastic um, points in your, in your answer there. I can see Mike's nodding away. He's like, yeah. I agreed that that was, that was, that was great, Nick. Glad. Um, the one thing I will add to that is, your personal expectations need to match the effort that you're planning on putting in as well, right? Like you're not going to be Elon Musk and the head of three companies, um, genius aside, if you're only going to put in a nine to five. <laughs> so there's, there is that, that tempered expectation and not feeling entitled to things. I think comes into that as well. The classic lead from the front as well, right? Yeah. Lead by example. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have a range of kind of leaders and managers over time who have taken that approach with me in the sense that, um, you know, I had one who was an absolute machine, B 
be up all hours of the day and night. And um, I just, to this day, I don't know when the guy slept, to be completely honest. Um, and But he never had the expectation of the team because I, I think he just genuinely loved what he did. Uh, you know, this was a guy who was in banking law and he lived and breathed it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's what got him out of bed in the morning. So he, he couldn't wait to do it. Uh, but he would not have that expectation of anyone else under him. Um, because he knew like that that absurd quirk of his was a superpower. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, so I mean, on that point, right? As we as we come come to a close on on our show, I, I mean, are there any um, particular like inspirations to you or incredible people that you would want to kind of give a shout out to? Yeah, I guess the people who inspire me. Uh, mentioned Elon earlier. He's a massive anomaly. The Colson brothers. Um, they're definitely two that. Two people that I like um, reading stories about and listening to podcasts about because they always have this unique view on the world. Matt Mullenwing's another one. Um, people who kind of take, sorry, the Carlson brothers started Stripe. Matt Mullenwing started uh, Automatic, which is WordPress's parent company. Um, and they they always have this random, oddball, out of the box point of view on topics that I care about. Um, so listening to them speak is it's a learning experience for me because they, they just approach life in a very different way. Yeah. Those, those would probably be the two that I would answer. Um, Tim Ferriss actually is probably one I should definitely shout out. Um, cause his podcast is amazing. He just has access to such a wide range of people and, um, yeah, just being able to listen to how they think about particular things from a wide range of industries. It's great fodder to just kind of help you, your thinking, uh, be influenced by areas you never would have thought historically like you know he gets restaurateurs in there he gets people that are the top of their game um athletically he gets people that are massive hedge fund managers the best in tech and they all just yeah always come up with some good ideas that um there's, there's always a, a nugget or two of gold in, in his podcast which i really appreciate excellent well hopefully we've had a nugget or two of gold in this one i mean i'd say <laughs> you've been an inspiration to us on this show all right that's a wrap we appreciate Nick coming on and joining us. I think that was a very good show. And uh, until next time, thanks for listening to Burn by the Firewalk. Mm-hmm.